evidence and answers. Most historians and archaeologists view the Bible as a religious work of literature containing a lot of folklore mixed with some historical truth. The Bible claims to be the divinely inspired Word of God and that it is an accurate record of God's activity in history. Is the Bible history or folklore? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In a recent message, Pat presented evidence from recent archaeological discoveries that have startled the archaeological world and builds a compelling case for the historical reliability of the Bible. Now, here's Pat with part one. Good morning, everyone. Well, as we are talking today about the Bible, a book like no other, and I'm going to be going through a lot of information really quick. I don't expect you to get it all, but we have our website here at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers. I hope you listen to our radio show Monday through Friday on KGU and Saturdays on KLight. And those of you we are friends in the Philippines. We're heard on the number two talk show station there in the Philippines. Everything I'm sharing with you today, you can get on our website and a whole lot more, okay? I don't expect you to get all what I'm going to say today because there is a lot I'm going to go over, all right? But I just want to expose you to the compelling and powerful evidence we have for the Bible. If you want to study it on your own in more detail, you can go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. And just a few things going on with Evidence and Answers. We're a Christian apologetics ministry here based in Hawaii to serve the churches and the people of Hawaii. All right, and of course, we have our annual Japan Christian History Tour. A lot of people don't know Japan has a powerful Christian history, older than ours even. A lot of people don't know about it. So come and join us. You know, when I first became a Christian, I went to a, quote, Christian school here in the state of Hawaii, one of the elite private schools here, and I came to Christ at uh, my senior year in high school, and I remember going up to the school priest. I had heard the gospel for the first time at a Baptist church out in Iaea, and I went to school priest the next day, and I said, hey, I heard the, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves us, sent his son to die for us, and we can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe, and he just smiled, and he said, well, don't take it so seriously. Christianity is like any other religion. If it makes you happy, good for you. I'm happy for you. You know, and I was stunned. I thought, whoa, here's the priest, and he doesn't seem to believe the Bible or what it teaches. And I took Bible class from him because I'd never read through the Bible. I was taught it was a bunch of folklore and mythology and a bunch of funny stories and stuff we don't take seriously, just like all the other religions. Yet these Christians at this church were taking it seriously as it was a real word of God. And so I took Bible class from him in high school and I learned all the mistakes and errors there were in the Bible that was not historically reliable. We have Greek in the book of Daniel. Daniel's supposed to be written in the time of the Babylonians. What's Greek doing in there? The Gospels are written hundreds of years after Jesus. And if you look at pagan Greek mythology, there's strong parallels there to the life of Jesus. That's where they got this stuff from. And no evidence for the Exodus and events of the Old Testament. I began to really wonder, the Bible claims to be the Word of God, but really is it? That's where my investigation began. And unfortunately, most Christians today do not view the Bible as the inspired and inerrant Word of God. It's a man-made work. 
unhistorical, but it teaches some good lessons in its folklore and mythology. And unfortunately, even among Christians, that's the majority view today. You send your kids to a, quote, Christian university, that's what they're going to get at most of the Christian universities, okay? I went to a Christian university. That's what I got, all right? Thought I had enough of it in high school, sign up for a Christian university because I said, I want to learn the Bible this time. I got there and I got more of the same. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 states, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. The Greek word for God-breathed there is the Greek word theopneustos. It means the scripture finds its origin and uniqueness in God himself. It flows out of the very character of God. It reflects the character of God who is the divine author of the Bible. So the Bible claims to be the unique one and only inspired word of God, and that there is no other. However, there are other religious books that make that claim. The Bhagavad Gita of the Hindu scriptures, the sutras claim to be divinely inspired. The Quran claims to be divinely inspired. The Book of Mormon and their scriptures claim to be divinely inspired. And if you walk into any university or even high school classroom today and say, I believe this is the word of God, no one's going to take you seriously. You're going to have to be able to present a compelling case for the divine inspiration of the Bible. I think that's what we got here. Most people believe the Bible is like any other religious book, a man-made book filled with errors, unhistorical, made up of mostly stories and folklore and mythology. That's what I was taught throughout high school and college. And in our post-Christian age that we are in now, Every Christian must be able to defend the inspiration and the authority of the Bible. If you're going to quote the Bible and say, well, the Bible says, in our post-Christian age, where the respect from the Bible has diminished, they're going to say, why should I take that seriously? Now, the Bible claims to be the only inspired word of God, and it upholds its claim. It's the only one that can uphold its claim with supernatural confirmation, right? So we're going to go through very quickly some of the evidences for the divine inspiration of the Bible. Now, the first one is this. The Bible is uniquely not only a spiritual book, but it is uniquely historically accurate. We have thousands of historical artifacts from archaeology and manuscripts and non-Christian writings that confirm the historical accuracy of the Bible. There's no book like it that gives us an accurate historical record of the actions of God in this world that's confirmed by so much historical evidence. We're just going to go through archaeology. Time does not allow me. I do a whole seminar, a whole day seminar on archaeology of the Bible, the Exodus and all of that. I'll just give you a few right now. Here's what some of the top archaeologists say when it comes to the Old Testament and the Bible. Dr. William F. Albright, the Dean of Middle Eastern Archaeology, said this. In all his studies, he said, there can be no doubt archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Bible. Nelson Gluick, another renowned archaeologist, says this. As a matter of fact, however, it may be stated categorically, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Donald Weissman, all right, wrote a few years ago, and he said, 
that we have over 25,000 okay, historical evidence that confirm the historical reliability of the Bible. That's absolutely amazing. There's no book, okay, with that much historical confirmation. However, he said that about three decades ago. Dr. Randall Price here says this, a couple decades ago, Donald Weisman could boast that the geography of the Bible lands and visible remains of antiquity were gradually recorded until today, more than 25,000 within this region and dating up to the Old Testament times, in their broadest sense, have been located. Today, however, such remains number in the hundreds of thousands. This is absolutely stunning. All right, folks, that's why my next degree, my wife's going, how many degrees do you need? You know? I keep saying, well, more, I, the more I study, the more I realize I don't know anything. It's absolutely phenomenal uh, what we're studying in biblical archaeology. It's absolutely amazing. Let's go through some of the archaeological discoveries in past and recent times. And we're just going to go through a, a few in the Old Testament and a few in the New Testament that have absolutely stunned the world. Uh, in 2011, we discovered the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, this is in the northeast corner of the Dead Sea here in Jordan at a place called Tal El Hammam. The professor I'm doing my PhD work under is Stephen Collins, is the one who discovered it. Okay, and you'll be seeing National Geographic, Discovery Channel, all kinds of things doing on it. Tal El Hammam, there's the tall there. There's the work that's being done. That's Dr. Stephen Collins. And we have discovered this is a massive, massive city in the Kikar Valley of the Jordan. In the location, that the Bible talks about, all right? It's a 150-acre by 62-acre site. The walls of this city are over 100 feet thick. In other words, this was a prosperous, booming city as described in the Bible. There's a gateway, plaza, and towers, a temple complex, governmental structures, a huge palace. We've discovered over 100,000 pottery remains there. And we have discovered not only this city, but the entire Kikar Valley of the Jordan was decimated by something that caused heat over 21,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the only thing we know that can do that is a meteoric airburst, all right? And it occurred right about 1700, okay? We know that because when you look at the style of pottery, grave sites, you know, on and on, the type of structure you have, we can date this thing pretty good, about 1700. When was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Right about that time, right? And just decimated the entire Kikar Valley. Next, we have a group called the Hittites for centuries. We had never found these people, and people questioned the historical accuracy of the Bible. They're mentioned early in Genesis 15, 1 Kings chapter 2. Well, a little over a century ago, in a place in Turkey there, they were digging and discovered a city in the area of Boghazkoi, and they found thousands of these tablets. When they had translated them, they discovered, they had discovered Hattusas, the capital city of the Hittite Empire. The Hittites had been discovered. And the Hittite language was discovered to be the ancestor of the Indo-European languages. In fact, it was the lingua franca of the trade industry then, they have a law code there that is very similar to what Moses wrote, okay, in style and format. That's how we can date the Old Testament law to the time of Moses, all right? And critics were arguing 
they were saying there's no way Moses could have written this kind of law because this kind of law code text doesn't exist. Well, we discovered, guess what? We got it in the Hittite records. In fact, that's where the format that Moses was following. How does Moses know Hittite format? He probably knows the Hittite language. You know why? Hittites and the Egyptians traded all the time. Where was Moses? In the courts of Egypt. He's probably familiar with the Hittite language. That's why Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the law is written in that format, which was the standard law format of that day. Matches up with the biblical text. Incredible, tremendous find. The Merneptah Stele. This was discovered in 1896 by Sir Flinders Petrie. This is a 10-foot tall plaque, and it recounts the victories of the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah. All right. He ruled from 1213 to about 1203 BC. He went into the land of Canaan. All right. The Egyptians owned Canaan until Joshua came in. All right. Until that time. All right. right around that time, they lose control of the entire land of Canaan. We wonder why. Well, anyway, they lost control of Canaan. And the Egyptians would go in there and conquer the land and take out slaves. Well, the Merneptah Stele is the record of Pharaoh Merneptah going into the land of Canaan. All right? And he records his victories over the city kings of Canaan. He writes this in the last three lines on the Merneptah Stele as he's recording his victories over the kings of Canaan. He says, The chieftains lie prostrate, saying, Peace. Not one lifts his head among the nine bows. Libya is captured, while Hatti, that's the Hittites, is pacified. Canaan is plundered. Ashkelon is carried off. And Gezer is captured. Yenoam is made into non-existence. Israel is wasted. Its seed is not. This is the first mention of the nation of Israel in history. And it says they are in the land of Canaan. And guess what? They're one of the nine bows of Egypt. What are the nine bows? The nine bows are the perennial enemies of Egypt, all right, that they have to battle. Okay, these are significant city kings who they have to conquer. Every great pharaoh has to conquer the nine bows of Canaan. Israel is one of the nine bows. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Israel is one of the perennial big enemies of Egypt, they're one of the nine, they must have been in the land for quite some time, huh? Well, if the exodus is correct and the date of the conquest of Canaan with Joshua began in 1360 B.C., as the Bible states, they'd be one of the nine bows. Things are beginning to match up here. Next, for centuries, people questioned whether David was a real historical person because they said, look, this is the greatest of the kings of Israel. The Messiah comes from him, blah, blah, blah. We've never found anything of him, not a coin, not a manuscript mentioning him, nothing from any foreign power that mentions ever trading with the greatest king of Israel. They taught for many, many years, and this is what I learned in high school and college, that he was a mythical figure, a mythical heroic figure of Israel. Well, in 1993, a stunning discovery, here's the, because I was in graduate school at that time at Dallas, here's the paper here from the Dallas Morning News, a stunning discovery was made that shocked the world. We discovered 
in Tel Dan, and archaeologists were calling this, if you read the article, stunning, phenomenal. It's one of the greatest discoveries in, in modern times here. We discovered a basalt stele, a plaque, that was put up in the 9th century BC, several decades after King David, from Hazael, the king of Aram, of Damascus, in the 9th century BC, when he defeated Israel, as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 15. Okay? This is the king that is recorded in 1 Kings 15. And after his victory over Israel, he put up a victory plaque. Right? And we were able to discover the two pieces of the victory plaque, written in Aramaic, fully legible there. And it says, I killed Jehoram, son of Ahab, king of Israel. I killed Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. Here the king of Syria, writing a few decades after the death of David, an enemy of Israel acknowledges a historical David and that the kings of Israel come from the line of David. He mentions Ahab. He mentions Jehoram as historical figures. Why would David be a mythical figure? Anyway, that was a stunning, stunning discovery. We have another one. Sennacherib's prism was discovered in the 1800s in the city of Nineveh, dating about 690 B.C., during the reign of King Sennacherib. Now, this octagon, eight-sided prism records the rule of King Sennacherib, and it records his invasion into the land of Israel, recorded in 2 Kings chapter 19. And if you remember... Sennacherib comes and destroys the city of Lachish, exiles the northern tribes of Israel into Assyria, and he comes and surrounds the city of Jerusalem. Right? And if you know, remember the story in 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah, being a righteous king, prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said, you will be delivered from Assyria. And it says, the angel of the Lord went out that night and slew over 100,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the next day, Sennacherib and his army fled back to Nineveh. Well, we have translated the octagon prism of Sennacherib, and it records his invasion of Israel. And he says, As for Hezekiah the Judite, did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities, as well as his small towns in the area, which were without number by leveling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines. So he talks about capturing the northern cities of Israel as recorded in the Bible. And he mentions Hezekiah specifically, all right, as a historical figure, as the king he did battle against. So we got another historical figure there mentioned outside the Bible. Well, interesting thing. When you look at the next part of his account here, he says, Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. He said, I had Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem. But he never captures Hezekiah, never mentions the capture of Jerusalem and Hezekiah. Right? In this record, he retreats back to Nineveh. Nobody knows why. Well, in the Bible, his army was decimated right, by the angel of the Lord there, and that's why he retreated. Okay, why is that not mentioned in Hezekiah's records? Kings back then don't mention their defeats. Okay? He's not going to write a record for all time, for all of his descendants to read, I went to Jerusalem and I got whooped, man. <laughs> He's not going to write that. You read the Egyptian records and you read historical records of that time. 
Even the defeats of the kings sound like victories. But it's very interesting that he would say, I had Hezekiah surrounded like a bird in a cage, and I didn't capture him. I didn't exile him like I did all the other kids. He did not capture the city of Jerusalem. Back then, kings don't record their defeats. Okay? It's like St. Louis High School. We got any St. Louis people here? Hey, you know, you talk to the St. Louis alumni. I play golf with uh, Duke Iona. All they talk about is football, St. Louis football. Why is that? Because they always win. But the real sports that we care about, golf, right? tennis, right? St. Louis people don't talk about it. Duke Iona doesn't talk about it. Why? Because they lose, right? They lose. They don't want to talk about football because they always win, you know? That's like... Uh, these kings back in the Middle East, they don't record their defeats, only their victories here. All right, that's the Old Testament there. How about the New Testament? Well, New Testament's almost a done deal. All right, the historical accuracy of the New Testament, you know, the majority in the archaeology field, in biblical archaeology, believe that most of the Bible is mythology, and that the Bible is not much of a historical help here. Those of us who believe the Bible is a historical work, in the arena of archaeology, we are in the minority. But the tide is swinging, all right? When it comes to the New Testament, boy, we see the tide just swing. I mean, there's so much for the New Testament. It's almost a done deal. The Pool of Siloam, recorded in John chapter 9. Long-disputed Pool of Siloam because we've never found it. This is where Jesus healed the blind man by spitting on the ground and making mud, putting it in his eyes. Well, Recently, okay, 2004, as construction workers were working on a sewage line, guess what? They came across a pool at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel, and after excavating there, guess what they discovered? This is the Pool of Siloam, all right? Matches the description of the Bible. That's not the only pool we discovered. We discovered another one, the Pool of Bethesda, there in John chapter 5, where Jesus heals a man, says, get up and walk. John describes it as having five porticos. And if you go to the northeast quarter of the old town of Jerusalem, there it is. And you go 40 feet down, you walk down the stairs, and there you see the pool of Siloam with the five porticos. Very unique design as described in John chapter 5. How about characters in the Bible? Well... This is the famous Caesarea Maritima. Now, many of you may know King Herod. The only thing you know about him, unfortunately, is that he, he's the guy that tried to kill Jesus, right? Slaughtered the children in Bethlehem. King Herod was perhaps one of the greatest builders okay, of his time. He created nine fortress palaces. Absolutely incredible engineering for his time. Absolutely incredible. This is Caesarea Maritima up in northern Israel here that Herod created. You see the Hippodrome there on your left. His palace is right on the cliffs of the beach there. The uh, stadium seats about 2,000. The acoustics are absolutely incredible. If you go there, and I talk about at this level, the guy at the very top seat can hear me clearly. No need, absolutely. Anyway, incredible engineering engineering design. Further to the left is his man-made harbor that he made. It's a, it's a man-made harbor. Absolutely incredible engineering there. Well, on this site, we discovered what's known as the Pontius Pilate plaque. Who is this guy? Well, if you remember, Pontius Pilate is the guy that sentenced Jesus to death. 
we discovered his plaque in 1961 here at Caesarea Maritima. And written there in Latin, you could read the inscription. It read, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius, the emperor. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear and would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there online, use our search engine for available resources. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcast like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.